Welcome to the Yacht Law Podcast, the program that answers your legal questions about buying, selling, and owning super yachts, working aboard them, and more. Your hosts, maritime attorney Michael Moore and yachting journalist Diane Byrne, are here to help you better navigate the luxury yachting lifestyle. While we discuss legal issues, this is not intended as legal advice or a substitute for the personalized advice of your own attorney. Consider the Yacht Law Podcast as a starting point to educate yourself about the super yacht world. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of the Yacht Law Podcast. Michael, good to see you. Thank you, Diane. Good to see you. So it's springtime and nearly the mid-season, so do you have any fun plans to head to Europe in the coming months? You know, as a matter of fact, I do. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, there's a, a thing in uh, Monaco on May 10th and 11th called the Yacht Summit, uh, sponsored by MIBA, Mediterranean Yacht Brokers Association and the International Yacht Brokers Association. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to uh, participate in that and hear what the other legal eagles uh, have to say, as well as some of the industry people. Good. Very good. Well, hopefully I'll be able to get myself over there before the Monaco show. I'm I'm trying to get to Italy to see a couple of shipyards, so we'll keep you posted on that. Beautiful. So a a couple of really good questions have come in in recent weeks, um, largely due to an accident involving the yacht Nakoa in Hawaii in February. And the the people are wondering about salvage. They've got a lot of really good questions, actually, about salvage. So I thought that would be a good topic for us to cover today. Um, Before I share some of their specific questions, though, I want to take a moment to explain to any listeners who may actually not be familiar with what happened. So... In February, like we said, there was a yacht named Nakoa. It was a 94-footer. And she ran aground in West Maui, near a marine conservation area, actually, uh, after she broke free from a mooring. Now, Nakoa was pretty firmly stuck on a reef there, unfortunately, which required assistance to drag her off. But the owner apparently could not come up with the money for that operation. So the Hawaiian government is a special department called the Department of Land and Natural Resources, hired salvage operators to take care of it. Um, Because the yacht had been grounded pretty hard, though, uh, she sank shortly after she was pulled free of the reef. Damage may have been done prior to that also, but there was certainly more damage done uh, during the salvage, you could hear actually the the scraping and the crunching going on while they were f- trying to free the boat. So, Michael, the questions that people have asked uh, range from really the basic definition of salvage to some of the more complex details. So why don't we start with the simple things first, really? What does um, salvage actually mean? And does a vessel need to be um, completely inoperable or even entirely destroyed for salvage to occur? No, I think that, well, first of all, there's two different uh, types of salvage. There's pure salvage and contract salvage. And as the name would imply, the contract salvage is where you actually enter into a contract um, to to pay a salvor uh, for their efforts to remove a to take part in saving a vessel. Uh, 
Uh, and then there's pure salvage, which is the events are happening uh, as as the events are taking place in real time. A vessel is in distress, um, and uh, services are rendered by a salvor in response to the mayday SOS or help. Uh, you know, uh, signal or, and, uh, that goes out over the airways. Uh, it can even be something as like a flare that invites uh, a party to come in and render assistance. Now, something you said I want to address right up front, which is kind of the kind of the point of a, the, the single most important factor, which is that a vessel is in distress and certainly, uh, Nicole was in distress because it was grounded. It's it's suffering from a marine peril. Uh, it's in danger of sinking. It's in danger of creating uh, more damage to the vessel. It, me- it makes it meets all of the tests. Um, but the idea of the owner not coming up with the money is actually um, something that is anathema to me because it's about the vessel itself is going to be standing for the salvage. Uh, in other words, that boat and the core was probably worth between four and $5 million. Um, and it would be, uh, at, it would, a maritime lien for salvage would arise at the time the salvage is given. So you don't really have to have the owner on board or some party breaking out a credit card or as you put it, coming up with the money, it's like move fast and we'll sort out payment later and it will pretty much come from the height of the vessel uh, once a, uh, once it is determined what the value of the services are. Okay, so then it sounds like another question people had, you basically just answered, who initiates the salvage? It doesn't necessarily have to be the owner. It could be, uh, in this case, um, the government saying, okay, we'll sort the issues, the, the details out later. This just needs to be addressed ASAP. Well, I think, I think the owner does, in fact, have to uh, invite uh, the salvage efforts. There, there have been some classic examples where the owners sort of piddled around and caused massive harm because of their delay in inviting the salvors to do their job. Uh, there, the, 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 the cases talk about services must be voluntarily given, uh, but it also means that they were not, not uh, uh, you mentioned the Coast Guard, it's not a governmental entity. It's a, it can be a passing boat that gets the salvage lien, who acts as a salvor. Uh, I've actually had uh, homeowners who went out in their small boats and saved boats and obtained a salvage lien and that lien was collected. Uh, but the vessel has to be uh, in distress. The services have to be voluntarily given, meaning it's not a governmental obligation to render services. And, uh, and then, but the main thing is the, you're invited in, if you will, to save the vessel. And there's some really interesting cases that, you know, we can talk about, but, Nicoa, from start to finish, was a very uh, uh, confusing, um, ill-advised, um, badly, badly handled matter where the owner just did not understand practically the kind of danger he was in. He let that vessel dig into that, the, to that shore 
And, and it's just understood pretty much widely in the maritime world that these vessels are digging in. The, the, the wave action is digging that boat in. It's getting in deeper, and it's, it's becoming more and more uh, entrenched in the, in the shore, and it's going to become very, very difficult to get it out of there if you don't move quickly. Uh, but, but again, uh, and I, I want to, it's a little bit of a, it's one of the most interesting areas of, the, of this, of maritime law. I want to mention something though, that, uh, you might find, you, you may have you know, already thought about it because you talked about the owner coming up with the money and it's a four to $5 million boat. But what if it were a small boat? What if it were a, a $500,000 boat? Well, the, guess what? The law has addressed that. And even even the the legislature and the insurance uh, underwriters have addressed that issue. There was something called the scopic. The scopic is the uh, special compensation P and I clause, where the thing salved has a a small value. In other words, you don't want a salver going, "Oh, that's only a five hundred thousand dollar boat." So if I salvage it. Uh, how will I be properly compensated? What percentage of $500,000 makes this worth it to me? It's not worth it to me, so I'll be on my way. But Scopic uh, is a particular clause that the insurance companies came up with uh, that, that is a special compensation clause that says even if what you salve is not of great value, we will pay you for the value of your services. So, um you know that's a that's a fairly recent development in the law, but it's uh, much needed because you had you had vessels kind of passing smaller vessels by. Yeah, we definitely don't want to have that because that that just ends up opening the door to more harm mm-hmm. to the vessel that's grounded and to the environment and right. on and on and on. So absolutely, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So then. Both the the Nicoa situation and then the example you just gave of the the smaller vessels brings up another question of who ultimately is responsible first and foremost for the cost of the salvage. It it sounds like it's the owner of the vessel, and the owner of Nicoa in this case would have been the first party to be mm-hmm. held responsible. You know, I actually think of it as the first the party that is first and foremost responsible uh, is um, the vessel itself, the in rim thing. The, the owner often, the record owner of a, of a vessel, of whether it's a super tanker or a, uh, a nice uh, yacht uh, or even a small yacht is the, is owned by a record owner. Uh, the record owner is a corporate entity. It may not have any assets other than the vessel itself. So there's no individual involved. I mean, there, there may be a, the ben, they call them the beneficial owner, but the beneficial owner is not liable. So to that extent, I guess the owner of the NACOA, uh, who in the press it reports anyway, seemed to be kind of waffling and not fully understanding what, what, his expo- what the exposure was. And his exposure was the true value of the NACOA itself. Now, there's, he had a sister ship um, called... Uh, uh, no Solani or something, but it was like another yacht that another yacht that he had in the in the charter uh, business. Really, that that yacht would not be at risk to the extent that in press release talking about claims against that yacht, it would not be uh, subject for any claims. Uh, it, the the claims are against the Nakoa and um, and uh, the um, 
one of the one of the things that I think is again a hallmark, and I'm not just sort of randomly making up these ideas, but the reality is, going back to 1867, there have been these factors. They're called the Blackwell factors, named after a vessel named the Blackwell that was decided back in 1867. And they're the so-called Blackwell factors. And so we've kind of talked about um, the vessel in distress factor, and we've talked about the services through voluntarily rendered factor. But what we haven't talked about is probably the third most important factor in a salvage operation is success. And if you remember, Nicole was successfully pulled off the strand, then it sank. I mean, it actually was a botched salvage effort. I mean, any way you, any way you slice it, uh, it was a failed salvage effort. I mean, you can point fingers and say they should have done this, they should have done that. And I've been involved in a few where the efforts of the, of the amateur salvage were heroic. I mean, absolutely brilliant and wonderful, uh, clever and, uh, and professional uh, with just these, these people out there on the water that we love so well that are so knowledgeable and so smart. And they look at the problem and they go, I can fix that. And I've had, I've had, uh, I've had Coast Guard on this. I love Coast Guard, but I've had them on the scene saying, no, we can't let you do that. And then I've heard the amateur salvors and we'll take one particular case that comes to mind saying, if you don't let me do it, the boat's going to roll over. And now you're going to have catastrophic uh, uh, loss, a lot of loss, and you'll have catastrophic environmental damage because all the engines are have oil in them and the and the and the tanks have oil and that will be pushed right out of the tanks so you'll have an oil spill and the and and uh, the salvor comes in with a very clever but practical ways of stopping the ingress of water um and they do it by throwing in one case i remember is just so funny because people were making light of the salvor he had a small boat had a bunch of trash in his boat it looked like trash anyway well, they used that trash to plug the hole. And once he got it plugged sufficiently well, uh, the pumps inside the boat were able to overcome the ingress of water. And once that starts, the boat's no longer in a sinking situation. It's now stabilized. Now you can go back to your hole or the tear, in this case, it's like a four-foot gash in the side of the boat, and do whatever you have to plug that hole. But ultimately, you're going to have a successful salvage effort. The mm-hmm. core, they pull it off the strand. They start hauling buggy, as you saw in the videotapes, and the boat just goes glove, glove, glove. It was a disaster. So no one would get paid because you have to have that that, that uh, third uh, Blackwell fa- factor of success. Um, so you never really did get to the final thing of what would be the value of the services rendered. Now, I'm not saying that Hawaii doesn't have some local law. I mean, salvage is federal law. It's uh, for admiralty law. Uh, it supersedes state law unless there's nothing to supersede. In in other words, the preemption doctrine says if there's a federal preemption, if there's a federal law, it preempts uh, state law. But if the the good people of uh, Hawaii have passed a law regarding a maritime incident like this, it would, that would be a, that would super, that would supersede or uh, uh, the, the, the federal salvage law. So there may be some personal obligation on the part of the, the beneficial owner, the operator. Some somehow they get to a real life person. Right, right. And it sounds like from what um, Hawaii is 
Department of Land and Natural Resources has said that they're going to hold the uh, the owner of NACOA responsible, responsible for reimbursing the cost of the uh, personnel to go out and to actually obtain the services of the salvers, even though the salvage itself was not successful. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's that's a state law that probably it's environmental law where they look to see who committed the tort um, and, uh, you know, his actions and, you know, how did he behave and what did he do? There's probably some state statute. I think there is. I've kind of seen some allusions to that. Let me, if I may, just kind of jump into something that um, the listeners might find interesting. If you if you remember the uh, that huge ship, the 1,300-foot ship, the ever given that blocked the Suez Canal. And so, and so this was um, something that this monster ship uh, uh, in the narrowest part of the Suez Canal, probably the busiest artery in the world for world commerce, suddenly this monster ship, 400 meters long, 1,300 feet, uh, is, uh, uh, it, it, is pushed sideways in the Suez Canal and blocks it. <laughs> pretty funny now listen to this this is where it gets interesting so that was on a march 23rd now what's going on so they bring in quick as a bunny uh smith salvage largest salvage company probably the most professional salvage company in the world of course flies in their people to 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 salvage this vessel and of course by salvaging it they're going to uh, unblocked the Suez Canal. Massive damages, billions of dollars, massive ship. But And while they're salvaging it, while they're starting their operations to salvage it, they are also negotiating the contract for salvage. Because you mentioned what you've been talking about is pure salvage. Something happens, the boat's in distress, the services are invited, people come in, they're trying to get it off the strand or keep it from sinking. This boat is blocking the canal. So Smith starts negotiating. And according to the owners of the ship, three days later on March 26th, according to the owners, as they would testify later in court, we, they had a contract. Salvage operation is in parallel with the contract negotiations. And as of March 29, which would have been six days after the original grounding, the vessel is refloated uh, successfully, is righted in the in the canal, and the canal is freed, and the vessel is freed, and it went on its way. I mean, it actually went to Great Bitter Lake for a, uh, uh, to test all of its systems, but then it went on its way. But see, here's the thing about it: a lawsuit. This lawsuit was filed, and um, the lawsuit basically said we never achieved a contract, and so that was quite a shock uh, to the. Smith, because Smith's now being kind of quiet. Remember, they're professional salvors, and so they know this. But in their view, they could never get the owners of the vessel to agree to a contract. So so when that happens, and this is to your point, somebody initiates a salvage. The owner says, I'm sinking. Can you help me? You can always fall back on just standard maritime law. To, to cover you. It's, it's been around since 1867 and even before 1867, only because that's when the, 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 the uh, court, the Supreme Court said, these are the Blackwell factors. 
And what were those factors about? Well, it's number one, leading into what is salvage, but also how do you compensate someone for the salvage uh, services rendered? So, so basically what happened was the, uh, the owners uh, brought a lawsuit. They said we had not, we didn't ever reach a contract. And Smith's, Smith's attitude was, well, it comes as news to us. We're only the most, most important salvage company in the world. But if you want to take your chances in general maritime law, if you want to take your chances under the Lloyd's Open Forum, no problem. We'll be adequately compensated. We're, we're, we believe in the system. So, so what's happened is the court in London, um, uh, one of the higher courts there, has ruled that no contract was reached. And that basically means that the amount of compensation due to Smith will be decided um, at, a, at a later time. I don't think it's been decided because that decision – only came down April 4th of 2023. Hmm. <laughs> wow. Last week, right? So I, I can't wait to see what the, 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 what the, the Admiralty Court does when it has to pick a number and say, number one, how many salvors in the world could do that job? Mm-hmm. Number two, it was successful. Number three, they were voluntarily entered. They were the, 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 the owners and the Egyptians invited them in. So now we're going to get into something you and I have not talked about is, well, how do you decide what is owed to the salvor? So that's that's kind of where we are. I thought you might find it interesting that only last week the courts in England basically concluded a preliminary matter. It Was there a contract? And Smith is kind of like, you know, they did argue because they said, look, we negotiated a contract. We're happy to live by it. Well, the court basically said, well, I, we find that there was no contract. Uh, and so Smith's attitude is, okay, that means we're under the either what is called Lloyd's, Lloyd's Open Forum or general conceptions of maritime law. And so mm-hmm. now you get into how do you how do you determine the value? And that's that's over a year, right? That accident yeah. happened last year. So yeah, it, it taking this long for that to be settled, that actually raises another question. Is there is there oh, any by the way, two years, March of twenty four. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. See, I was even thinking that it was the wrong year. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. So then is there, you know, this is an off the cuff question. Is there a, a if, if this even is a scenario, is there a generally accepted time frame in which these these contracts are supposed to be? put in place and costs supposed to be determined or is it just kind of the, you know, get the vessel off the reef, et cetera, first, and then we'll figure it out. Well, first of all, I think I would say, you know, you know, I I think you just, you gave what I think is the cut to the chase answer. And I think that will serve you very well in most of your uh, cases. You basically are relying on the, good faith of people and honesty of people uh, and uh, these committees and arbitrators that are appointed uh, that basically try to decide these things. Um, you know, you, you know, everybody, when you're in, when you're in trouble, everybody wants a salvor. Help me, help me. You know, I'm sinking. I mean, I've had it where the sun was going down in the Western sky and, uh, uh, vessels had no uh, steerage at all. Their their props were completely fouled. Uh, w- there was a case, by the way, recently. I think it was only a month, or, like last month. I think was 
a yacht called the Viviere II. Uh, it was off Australia. It was a Norhaven 96. And this tanker crashed into this yacht. And the reason the tanker crashed into the yacht, by all accounts, is that um, the fishnet, uh, a fishnet had fouled one of the props. And somehow, if you can believe this, uh, there was a, a tender line after the first event happened, they were trying to bring in the tender. By the way, probably never a good idea to tender, to, to tow a tender that far behind a, a yacht, because if the yacht slows, the tender continues on its forward prior, you know, way. And the, and most crazily enough, most of the time that tender is going to get around the prop. So now we have a, now we have a yacht that's got both props fouled. It has no steerage, no headway, no steerage. And once these tankers, once they're seeing it, they're try- they have to make all these determinations. And, of course, in this case, the tanker, you can't ta- turn a tanker on a dime. It takes a mile or, or, or more to just turn the damn thing because they're not made for turning. They're made for going forward. Um, and that's going to be an interesting case to watch. I think we can probably revisit that down the way. But... Um, yeah, that was clearly a, a vessel uh, that was in distress, and uh, the and now here's the key point: though. the Royal Australian Navy is the party that saved that boat. So they don't they're not really going to be entitled to a um, salvage award. Although I have had a case where the where the United States Coast Guard um, the Coast Guard did not get a salvage award. But the English underwriters were so delighted for the services rendered by the Coast Guard, they basically said, listen, you saved, you know, we had a multi-million dollar situation because the young men and women on board this Coast Guard Carter saved this vessel on the high seas off the coast of Cape Town, South Africa, 30-foot rolling waves. We we really would like to make a donation, uh, you know, to a charity of your choice. So, you know, I reached out to the Coast Guard. I said, look, we have a problem. We have an opportunity. We have a problem. They said, look, we can never be uh, put in the position of thinking that we're soliciting a payment. It has to be voluntary. But, you know, if you want to suggest to them a charity, uh, you have our blessings to do that. As long as the record is very, very clear, we're not in any way soliciting this donation. So it was the Coast Guard. So naturally, I thought that the appropriate charity was the Coast Guard Foundation. Mm-hmm. It's a right. 501c3 that supports the kids, the men and women of the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. That donation was made. But let, let's talk for a moment, Diane. And you've got you've already put some great questions out there. Forgive me for blabbering on, but uh, I know we're running out of time. How do you determine how much is owed? You've already cut to the final thing, which is the the, the scoping clause, which most people never heard of. I can tell you right now some lawyers that I've dealt with recently that had never heard of it. And uh I said, well, check your, read your policy because I think it's in there. But the value of the thing salved is very important. The danger to the salvage crew is a factor. The equipment needed to perform the salvage, sometimes specialized equipment is needed. The expertise required in the successful operation, remember success is a condition precedent. And usually then the values are 3 to 10% of the value of the things solved. So if it's, 
you know, I mean, you can just do the math on that. Um, I think that if and if it's not adequate, then you then you then you then you go back to scopic to where the the uh, solid work and say, let's give more money, uh, and the insurance company and the insurance company is going to be happy to pay it because they've insured this vessel, and bad things did not happen. Mm-hmm. Things happen, so they should be. In most cases, they are happy. Um, and I think that um, if you, I mean, I, I, I'm happy to take any questions you have. I'm trying to think of, I wanted to just mention, uh, I have a few a few of these matters. I Sometimes I was involved in sometimes, I hate to even think that I was involved in some of these suckers. But uh, my law firm was involved. Um, I was actually, my New York law firm, I was actually in Saudi Arabia when the Amoco Cadiz lost steerage off the coast of France. Okay. Now, what do these guys do on the Cadiz? They have to call the Amoco headquarters in Chicago. Dude, that's not what you do. What you do as a captain is take your best hold, make hold your nose and make your best call. That's what captains do. They get these guys out of bed in the morning. And of course they have to have a conference. So they get other people now. If Amico hears our podcast, they're probably going to call me and maybe yell at me or something. <laughs> but the reality is, when the time bar has entered, 1978, um, I was a couple of years out of law school at that time. And I was kind of excited because I was in Saudi Arabia and I was thinking of sending me to the coast of France, the north coast of France, the, the one that's not on the med, but the other coast. Meanwhile, these guys are out of bed, and meanwhile, this boat is drifting ever closer to shore. Salvage tugs are standing by, two ocean-going salvage tugs, the big ones, with the big with the big lines and the big engines, and they're offering their salvage services, but they're not getting invited to tender their services. By the time Chicago woke up, had their little conferences, had their cup of coffee or whatever at three o'clock in the morning. And they said, yeah, 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 go ahead and do that. We'll do it with Lloyd, Lloyd's open form. Go ahead and render the services. Well, at that point, the vessel is now within the toe of the shore. There's that. There's a, I'm sure there's a word for it. I should Google it. But it's the suction that's now pulling you ever closer to shore. It's the, it's the dynamics of, uh, of uh, uh, water hydrodynamics. The, salver, the, tu- the, the, the tugs put their lines on the boat. And guess what? The lines parted, which means they came apart. The result was 2,320,000 tons, 2,320,000 tons of oil was put on the coast of France. They're probably still suffering from the effects of the sinking of the Amico Cadiz, all because the captain on board, didn't say to these salvors, absolutely, do your do your best. Thank you. For, we'll sort out the price later. Your point. Just save us. We're grateful you're on the scene. We're grateful to see you, gigantic ocean-going tugs. God bless you. Godspeed. Good luck. And the cost, trust me, was a lot less uh, to Amico and the, everybody else involved because of what the disaster that was one of the largest uh, uh, oil spills in history, but basically it's a salvage catch. 
Right, right. So really, this underscores that time is of the essence. Just get it done, free the vessel from whatever the scenario is before really potential further detrimental, significant damage is going to be done. And then, yeah, we'll we'll work the phones and the lawyers, et cetera, and figure out the costs afterwards. Let me let me quote you, Diane. Let me tell you what a great jurist you would make. I happen to have the copy that I just downloaded of the decision. How does this sound to you? Um, the court recognizes that salvage services, uh, which is often the case, uh, that negotiations for these services take place under time pressure, and there is a measure of urgency mm-hmm. in agreeing to terms. Is that, doesn't that sound English? <laughs> a measure of urgency. Yeah, there's a little measure of urgency here, Your Honor. Yeah, uh, just and, a wee bit. Yeah, and and but the court in this case says we recognize all that, but the simple truth is, you didn't come to an agreement. There is no contract, and so now Smith will go into the arbitration provisions of the Salvage Convention, uh, which is recognized throughout the world, and uh, 1989 Convention. That probably came out of the Amoco Cadiz uh, disaster, but passed in the United Nations throughout the world, pretty much. Uh, that says, you know, if you don't if you don't agree to terms, okay, fine. But if the other side does the salvage services, they do it voluntarily and they're successful, we'll let a panel of arbitrators decide what the value of that is, mm-hmm. you know, the, and try to be honest and fair and equitable and all that, all those good things. Right. Now, in terms of determining that that monetary figure, is there ever a case where the um, the salvor, uh, or in the Nakoa case, it would be the state of Hawaii, is there ever a case where they could um, say that there's a, a an additional fee like, similar? I'm, I'm thinking similar to to lawsuits where there's the compensatory damages and the punitive damages, can there be something along the lines of punitive costs in this case to where they could argue before the arbitrator, listen, if we didn't do this, here's what we could have here's what could have happened to the environment, here's what could have happened to the reefs, here's what could have happened to the shoreline, you know, wh- wherever the vessel or the yacht was grounded. And there are probably some pretty readily available costs to figure out in terms of environmental cleanup and damage, et cetera. So would they be able to argue some type of punitive value on top of it all? It's a, it's, it's a, first of all, you have the in extremis nature of the, um, you know, the, the circumstances, uh, you know, the, this, you know, we, we kind of scoff at and, and, and make fun of to some extent, I guess. Enough time has gone by, several decades since Amico Cadiz gave gave rise to the Salvage Convention. But but the sal the, the the thing being salved and the people on board they are acting in extremis, and so that does work against uh, a punitive damage type analysis. I think it's and you're really no almost always. Um, no, I don't know that I've ever seen a case that 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 basically talk about punitive damages. I will tell you this: that the environmental uh, uh, aspect has only been only recent in recent years uh, it had become an aspect of a salvage award. 
uh, for years, it was not it was not compensable. So, you know, it was like and the people um, were always trying to say, but your honor, this is what they if they had not done this, it would have damaged all these mangroves. But now and more in more recent years has been what I, what I think people call a more uh, enlightened view and that there is a, there is something uh, basically that says and you can sort of hear it embedded in the awards that they get a certain factor that of the environmental damage averted gets properly compensated. Uh, you know, it might be appropriate to mention the other thing that you sometimes get is uh, what what is called euphemistically as life salvage. What if there's six people on board or five people, three people, four people, whatever, people on board, and the salvor's first act is taking those people off the sinking vessel and putting them on the, the safe ship. Well, um, that that's not compensable. They still have no uh, factor that basically says that you would get compensated for saving six lives. Lives historically were compensated, but that's only when the life being salved was considered property. So we all know that um, the, the uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? You know, the, it's like the old concepts of, of conquer and subjugate, you know, that, that kind of, you always conquered and then subjugated the per- people you conquered. That went away with the British. They said, well, why don't we conquer and trade? We can conquer them, and then we'll trade with them. They'll kind of make them trade with us. <laughs> and we'll figure out a way to make money. But I think that the more recent thing is sort of these enlightened views when nowhere on earth um, uh, are humans considered property. But in the old, old, old cases preceding the 1800s, that was a you know legitimate factor. But um, the question became, but what about life salvage? That they they took that concept, and the courts had to say, and I think you can see some of these judges just, you know, basically saying, "Oh my God, you know what I'm asked to do." But to make this distinction, say, "No, no, that we are uh, we will not get into the obvious, uh, inhumane and unforgivable and shameful." realities of that case, but embedded in that case is the fact that they, that was property, that they were on the manifest as property. Today, uh, we have salvage and we had human beings involved. But to date, I, know, I don't know of a single case where uh, uh, people were, uh, it was your, the salvage was awarded an award for the people they saved. I've had a lot of people say, give donations to as grateful, I mean, really nice people giving wonderful donations to charities for thank God for you and thank you and bless you for saving us. We would have surely have died out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so you do have let that, but, it, but the point is, is, but that's the one big area that's unresolved. I think the the other thing that I think is still an issue is I don't think the environmental uh, claims are um, beautifully developed yet. They're kind of there, but not I'll tell you what you do get is you get compensation for reef damage and it will be millions and it will be against the vessel, things like that. Um, and the salvage operation really had, you know, um, if anything, there's a nod to 
how well did the salvor do their job in bringing it off the strand and not further damaging the reef. But I've had cases, three and four million dollars, where we had to pay divers to go down and glue uh, reefs back together, which was a pretty expensive job, but it's it works. You just put them, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's like putting up, it's calcium and it's uh, aragonite, which is another way of saying it's a calcium thing. And yeah, you just glue them back together and they just carry on doing their little reef thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, emitting their exoskeletons and building their little underwater cities. Right, right. You can see these guys down there with their glue guns, you know, finding pieces that fit together. Amazing. (laughs) That's maybe the the one bright side of of salvage operations is that they can repair the environment in that respect when it comes to the reefs and and rocks. So, you know, exactly. And thankfully, the majority of these cases also, it does sound like things do go as well as can be expected. You don't want to say, you, you can't say properly because there's no way to plan for every part of the situation, but the, for the most part, everything does go well. Exactly. And things yeah. happen, you know, boats are out there uh, doing their thing and, uh, you know, things happen. I mean, it's just that simple. Uh, uh, in, inexplicable things happen. Uh, there's been a couple of cases. I've actually had a case involving it in a remarkable thing, but uh, it was, just, it actually was a bit of a salvage case. It was a, um, a couple of sailors, very prominent sailors, uh, who were on their way to the UK. They were left New York. Um, they uh, got rammed by a mother whale. And after getting rammed for the third time, and it's now breaking up their boat, they realized, oh, my God, there's a calf. And they were between the calf and the mother whale. And so in her world, that was a no-no. And she totally disabled this ship. And it was going to, it's yacht, it was a sailboat. It was going to sink. And they were, they didn't know what they were going to, they were in the middle of the Atlantic. They were putting out the Mayday, put out the SOS. And they were, in fact, uh, picked up by a passing ship that was uh, westbound toward New York. And it towed them back into uh, New York Harbor. And, you know, the, the boat was a total loss. So it was, it was interesting because uh, a footnote to history, uh, which I always am amazed by these things. I had met the owner of the boat. I won't, I'm not going to say his name, but if you ever hear this podcast, I know who I'm talking about. This is a guy I'd met one time, very brief moment. I was on a wooden sailboat off Martha's Vineyard. And this man held me over and said, is that the old, and I'll tell you the name. He said, is that the old, uh, Island girl. And I said, yes. He says, I love Alden's. It's classic. So it's been renamed. I said, yes. Is that's one of my favorite boats. And then he introduced himself and I introduced myself and he said, well, have a, have a wonderful, um, sale. Well, I thank you very much. Now, months later with that tiny, tiny, tiny little introduction, I got a call from a guy. Of course, I had no, no, I had no memory of his name at all. You know, <laughs> he says, "No, no, I met you. You're, I met you off Nantucket, you're behind my house, and you're on board." And he said, "He, he, he the Alden, da 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 da." And I went, "Oh my God, you have an amazing memory." He says, "No, I remember. It was a wonderful boat." And uh, he said, "Will you handle this case for him?" And I said, I'd, "I'd be delighted." So, yeah, but it was a salvage case where the claim was never asserted. Um, uh, the passing ship was rendering a good Samaritan 
service. They did save the two people on board and the boat itself, which was later declared a total loss. And so that, mm-hmm. that was that. But salvage is always interesting. It's always fun. Yeah, I've, I've actually learned a lot today in, in talking with you and going through these questions that people had sent in. So thanks for your time. And I'm, definitely this will be a topic we can revisit, I'm sure, because there'll be more cases and probably more nuances uh, to discuss in the coming months and years. Right. Well, thanks. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have a Yacht Law question you would like us to address on an upcoming episode of the Yacht Law podcast, you can contact Michael Moore or me. And whether you are a yacht owner, a crew member, a representative in the industry, or even someone seeking to learn more about the world of yachting, we want to help you make better educated decisions. And we can keep you anonymous if you so wish with the questions that you would like us to address. Until next time, I'm Diane Byrne. Michael, why don't you sign off? I think we have to come up with a pithy sign-off here, uh, Diane. I'm not sure. Fair, fair wind and safe seas or following seas. Or, we'll, we'll get to it. But it was, uh, once again, it was nice being with you. Thanks for everything. Thanks, Michael. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Yacht Law Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or your favorite podcasting service. Remember, the super yacht world can sometimes be complex, and the hiring of a lawyer is always an important decision. Should you need to retain one, the team at Moore & Company can send you complimentary written information about their qualifications and experience. Please visit the website more-n-co.com.